Visualize a woman on stage. The audience sits silently, anticipation so loud it rings in your ears. Her long black hair hangs around her face as she picks up a brush covered in blue paint. She's surrounded by little metal boxes. Cameras hang around her, resulting in a dome of glimmering perspective splashed across huge screens to either side. Then the dance begins. With each stroke of her brush on the white canvas floor, the metal boxes join her dance, amplifying her movements, adding their color to the work. Art unfolds before your very eyes, as these little metal boxes become more than robots. They become extensions of the artist herself, and the audience transforms from anticipation to curiosity to awe. I'm Blakely Thomas Aguilar, and this is Pop Culture Tech, an original podcast brought to you by VMware. I thought I knew art, or at least had a general understanding. I studied art history and theory in college. I go to the museum at every new city I visit. I've studied the greatest writers, surveyed the Pulitzer Prize photography lists. One of my favorite Doctor Who episodes taught me that Europeans say Van Gogh, not Van Gogh. Not quite a documentary, but you know what I mean. Like I said, I thought I knew art until I started researching this episode. After interviewing and studying the work of two amazing artists, I realized that Oscar Wilde was right again. Life really does imitate art. And because our lives are increasingly more digital, it shouldn't have been a surprise that artists, the innovators of every era in human history, would be at the forefront of technological experimentation and innovation today. One of these technological innovators is artist and researcher Su Gwen Chung. So I think I started this journey about five years ago, and it was a really interesting time because I started getting really interested in this story, um, which is a story of Lisa Dahl and AlphaGo, which is a computer program uh, designed by DeepMind that could um, play the game Go YK um, alongside the, the most advanced uh, YK player in the world. And it was interesting to me because in this sort of adversarial um, uh, match between Lisa Dole, a human player, and AlphaGo, uh, a computer program, a lot of um, really unexpected revelations came about from that. Um, one revelation in particular was this idea that while Lisa Dole lost against this computer program, um, he found the moves that the program made. He described it as uh, incredibly beautiful and um, and I thought that was a creative provocation that I couldn't get out of my head. Like this possibility of a beautiful uh, move that was uh, enacted by a non-human agent was something I got really obsessed with. So I really needed to find that out for myself. So when I started collaborating with these machines, um, these machines that I call uh, Drawing Operations Unit Generation 1, 2, and 3, Doug for short, um, it really changed what I saw could be the potential of my practice. I think before, when I worked with technology, um, the work was often about the pristine mark or something that really strove towards perfection. But uh, when collaborating with these systems now, it's I've learned that you know there's a lot of beauty in letting go of that control. And uh, that's really been celebrated in the performances and being able to share that with other people, I think is one of the uh, takeaways from working with machines that I never really expected. 
Let's talk about Doug. I had the opportunity to study these little robotic artists when I visited Suguin's studio in Brooklyn. At its simplest, modern technology is surreal. I mean, here's this static box, whether it's a laptop or server or tiny little art robot. It's just an object, really. But I can't help but liken digital technology to Frankenstein's monster. It's a shell built to help humans act out their will, their purpose, their desires. That is until, like Dr. Frankenstein, you imbue life into the object. Today, we write code and make that empty shell come to life. That box then becomes an extension of our will, helping us communicate, order dinner, send a ship into space. Artificial intelligence, however, could transform the way we activate our will into machines in a whole new way. And so Gwen is using AI and robotic experimentation to act out her artistic will in exciting, groundbreaking ways. As we all know, I think we associate the robotic arm as a form uh, with automation, which comes from the Industrial Revolution. And I think there's something uh, a little bit dystopian about that application of, of otherwise neutral form. So I thought it would be uh, a creative challenge to reframe that historical icon in a different way. So a lot of projects using AI, uh, using AI technologies and art, happen a lot on the software side. They become simulations of different uh, photographs of paintings and, and whatnot. And, and that's been really exciting in terms of how we explore computer vision. Um, how my projects kind of um, take that idea and evolve it a little bit further is that I really am interested in bringing back the idea of the body and the embodied gesture into uh, the conversation around AI. Because I think that's what we're seeing in society now. You know, we're seeing these systems being implemented in our urban developments, you know, and I think that's a really um, unpredictable, really um, special place to try to, to think more deeply about how AI systems really impact our daily lives. How Doug has evolved as a collaborator for me has been pretty, really organic, actually. We're in its fourth generation now uh, that I'm working on now, but the first three generations have revolved around mimicry, uh, memory, and uh, a multi-agent body, multiplicity. So in mimicry, uh, the robotic arm mimics my movements and we perform in real time, the sort of synchronized drawing performance behavior. In the second one, I became really interested in exploring the possibility of neural nets. So I'm using a recurrent neural network to, that's trained on a model of my own drawings to uh, create a feedback loop of gestures between me and the robotic arm. And the third system, which was probably my most ambitious to date, was a multi-robotic system linked to the flow of a city through computer vision algorithms designed by Bell Labs. So the Bell Labs motion engine uh, was one that relied on something called an optical flow algorithm, which in my mind extracted the flow states of the collective of New York City that I found to be uh, something that I really wanted to inhabit for myself in the space of a performance. I thought it was interesting how it transposed this, um, you know, this moving traffic, this organic feel of New York City, uh, like the flow of water um, into a space of a canvas, something that could be examined in a different way. And what was really interesting about that project is because there's so many different uh, units involved, what started off as a more predictable simulation at the beginning ended up demonstrating all these um, unpredictable emergent behaviors that I then had to kind of work with and respond to. And 
And I think that um, was a really you know, an aha moment for me because it felt like I'd approached a vitality with this collaboration that uh, was really something different than what I'd done before. Artificial intelligence strikes a chaotic blend of emotions in us mere mortals, and it has since the first Greek myth about robots. Fear, excitement, anticipation, curiosity, doubt. But I find that jumble of reactions to be a really powerful tie into what art makes us feel and experience. So I asked Gwen whether she thought that AI might become, one day, our supreme overlords, even in the artistic world. No gods, no masters. So do I consider these robots works of art in themselves? You know, I've been exploring different types of forms and I think I'll really continue to do so. And I've found that they're really, uh, for me, a response to um, what's sort of going on with uh, advances in technology and what's, what's interesting. I, I'm starting to view them a little bit like kinetic sculptures that are linked to AI-driven uh, systems, but the forms themselves actually have a lot of creative potential in thinking about, um, you know, uh, a human performer in uh, in a mechanical system, you know, and and it's a form that I'd really like to hone in on a little bit more because there's a real power in um, in translating some of these conceptual ideas and technology into something that um, occupies the same space with you. So um, as I design more and more of my own uh, robotic forms, I. I'm definitely starting to see them as artworks in and of themselves. I do think human-machine collaborations will become much more common in the future. Um, the robotics industry is, you know, progressing rapidly, and I think these uh, assistive systems, these assistive interactions, will become much more commonplace. And and there's aspects of that that are really exciting to me. I think there are ways in which we can really benefit you know, mankind with these assistive, collaborative um, dynamics that uh, aren't about relinquishing agency. They're not about this tech theism that's emerged, but something that's just the future we want to see. Um, there's a lot of imaginative potential in that. I think part of that is, you know, getting your hands dirty a little bit and being able to see beyond how we're taught to use some of these systems and how we're taught to apply these tools. Because really, the, the landscape is really expansive. And with the right data set, with the right um, educational tools, a lot can be possible. Let's journey into another well-known means of artistic expression, photography. Renee Beyer is a Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist. She uses her powerful photos to be a catalyst for change, from poverty to child labor, and from climate change to women's rights. I grew up in the Bronx, New York, and my father had a dark room in the bat bathroom of our uh, apartment there. And uh, when I was about, well, I'd say seven, eight years old, he would develop prints and I was mesmerized when I would see the picture just come up in the developing tray. And I think that was where it really it sparked my interest into photography. Well, I consider myself a documentary photographer, um, and that is more focused on social issues uh, that inform the public of important um, environmental and social issues, a chronicling of events in history, or even everyday life. For me, it's all about the human condition. 
and translating other people's lives through photography so that they can have a deeper understanding and compassion and maybe um, the ability to act and, and uh, facilitate change. When Renee peers through her camera lens, she sees our stories. And like every true artist, her images not only tell that story, but also convey the power of emotion to us viewers, begging us to ask why. Photographers like Renee, however, now have a new opportunity to expand their art beyond the darkroom or the printed page. They can use modern technology to turn a picture into an immersive experience. And their stories can reach further across the world and deeper into our hearts and minds. One of these immersive experiences is Living on a Dollar a Day, the internationally acclaimed book and interactive exhibit, tell the story of people struggling to survive against the devastating effects of poverty. The Forgotten International, which is a nonprofit in San Francisco, was searching for a photographer to work on this project um, regarding extreme poverty. The project began with the United Nations Millennium Goals that were up for reviews. But previous to that, I had been to Mali, Africa, photographing a story on um, genetically modified food. And while I was there, I photographed a child, a toddler, um, who was working alongside his mother to burn wood to make coal. When I followed him back to the encampment, the village chief was saying, with an axe in his hand, those that don't work, don't eat. And then I thought, my gosh, if this little boy had not been working aside, alongside his mother, he wouldn't have been able to eat. And I was mortified. And that's when, and that was in 2003. And that's when I realized I wanted to really work on child rights and women's rights and, you know, and when I really had this epiphany. So when they were searching for this photographer for this project, I really wanted to do this project. So my focus now is the, um, to, to have those goals attached to these fo photographs. And these photographs, um, you know, go the whole gamut of extreme poverty from prostitution to childhood labor to women in the workforce to um, human rights to um, our environment and climate change and you know there's 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 over 20 issues that are covered in this in this book and, and exhibition and so we focused on 10 of them in the living on a dollar a day exhibition which travels all over the world Renee and team wanted to embrace digital technology to help examiners dive deeper into the story captured in the photograph when you're going through an exhibition, I feel like you still need time to breathe and look in, at images, the still image, and take them in and, and read the caption and almost be able to jump into the photograph as if it was your reality. But I also believe that you, you can help the public and help aid them by giving them more information if that's what they want. I mean, like I said, if a, if a, if a photograph asks questions, it would be nice to be able to answer some of those questions. So I think technology helps you bridge that gap and it helps you if you're feeling really empathetic, but you just don't know what to do. This tool can 
help um, navigate you to places where you might be able to help, maybe in your community, maybe working for Habitat for Humanity or for um, Facebooking this issue just to bring awareness. There's um, three different things that you can do. You can listen in, in my voice of me talking about um, the situations that you're, you're looking at in the photograph. You can act in some way. You can pledge to do something. You can donate. And the biggest part is you can be educated and you can read more about um, each topic. So when you're going through, you can use your mobile device and there's a barcode and you can access all of this educational information. You know, a very powerful um, way of um, exploring extreme poverty to the whole educational component as to really in-depth um, uh, knowledge about each issue. So it's, it's a really important app. It's called You Bridge It, and it helps connect people um, when they're in this environment because you'll see that many of them just feel kind of hopeless. I was watching people there, you know, they, they get emotionally invested in the photograph and then they just sort of walk out the door and then they don't really do anything. And so this gives them an opportunity to actually do something. And it's not necessarily built about donating money, but you could donate your time and help somebody, you know. So it's not just focused on, you know, the, the money, but it's, it's focused on sort of this shared humanity. I couldn't help but ask, in a world of smartphones and Instagram, isn't everyone a photographer? I think what's really funny is that recently I just saw this t-shirt and it said everyone's a photographer until they have to turn the camera on manual. And I thought, you know, that's really funny. Um, and so, and, and it really resonated with me since that's how I began, sort of in this film era. Um, there's um, a photographer for contact press images, Youngie Kim, and she calls this film era the silent generation of photographers because we never had that, you know, Instagram and Facebook and all of this, you know, social media where we could just pump our pictures everywhere so that we were instantly well-known. We had to work really hard to get where we were. And we laid this foundation for all of these other photographers. So that, that's a big um, difference, I think, between the errors and the um, years of experience that I bring to the table versus some other photographers. And the fact that um, literally we did have to just stand there and wait for that one moment. And then don't forget, we only had 36 frames, right? Or 24 frames, depending on your roll of film. And you couldn't see the back of the camera either. You were like, oh, I hope I got it. Get back to the dark room and you'd be like a nervous rack processing your film and hoping you got the picture. And you're at the light table and you're like, oh my God, I hope it's here, I hope it's here. No, and now it's like, oh, I just look at the back of my camera. Oh, yeah, okay, I can leave. So it's a, it's a big game changer in technology and photography. Big game changer. Art isn't just painting or photography. In fact, when we look at all the cool things technology can do today, software is beautiful. A powerful creation by a talented creator. Fortunately, we have artists like Suguin Chung and Renee Beyer using the digital revolution to create beautiful and awe-inspiring depictions that help us advance the next generation of human expression. By giving us a window into the lives and experiences of others, 
we see deeper into our collective soul. I'm Blakely Thomas Aguilar, and this is Pop Culture Tech. Learn more about this episode and see the amazing works of art from both of our featured artists at vmware.com forward slash radius. You can also visit their websites at sukwin.com and reneecbuyer.com to learn about their exhibitions and upcoming appearances. Our podcast, as ever, is brought to you by VMware, the software that connects, automates, and secures the world's digital infrastructure. Learn more at VMware.com. And if you have questions about today's episode or want to share an artist breaking the digital mold, follow me at BlakelyAgs on Twitter and use hashtag popculturetech. Until next time, pop culture fans.